1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kevin Brazil. On his collection of essays, Whatever Happened to Queer Happiness? Kevin Brazil is a writer and critic based in London, who grew up in County Wexford, Ireland. His writing has appeared in Granta, Freeze, The White Review, London Review of Books, The Times Literary Supplement, Art Review, Student International and elsewhere. And today we're going to be talking about Kevin's debut collection of nonfiction, which is Whatever Happened to Queer Happiness. Kevin, welcome to Little Atoms.
0: Thank you very much for having
1: me. So first of all, then, and and it's basic, but you do do it in the book. So and we'll talk about the history in a minute. But what does the term queer mean?
0: Gosh, that is a question. Um, I think it means whatever people who identify with the term want to use it to mean. So I am very much about queer being something that enables people to do and achieve things politically or in terms of their self-expression around gender and sexuality. So it, I think and that is what makes it, I think, so attractive to people. You know, it is it is a term through which ideas of gender and sexuality can be changed and usually for the better and the happier. But of course, that being said, it does lose its meaning if every, if everything is queer, if everything is queer and nothing is queer, right? And it's definitely, I think, a word which means people are wanting to move away from inherited ideas of heterosexuality and normative, ultimately patriarchal ideas of, of gender um, and sexuality. But, you know, sometimes talking about it that way can make it feel kind of dry and theoretical and... Um, While I have so many amazing colleagues, and there's so many amazing thinkers who write, you know, queer theory in that sense. I, um, you know, queer to me is not something abstract or historical or theoretical. Uh, You know, it's it's a it's a it's a way of living that comes with obviously some difficulties and sadness, but ultimately has made me very happy. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be anything other else. So I wanted to use the book to kind of both, yeah, both write about queerness in not as something theoretical or abstract but as kind of lived experience. And while not taking away any of the difficulty that can come with that, ultimately to write about and reflect on the joy that it has, has bring me to hopefully let others reflect on the joy it has brought to them.
1: Well, at the risk of just staying theoretical for a moment, (laughs) just, just tell us something about the history of where it came from then, where it is reclamation. It's obviously a, there has obviously been Queer people throughout history, but yeah. and we'll talk, you know, about definitions of, you know, the fact that there wasn't, you know, people called homosexual not that long ago. But queer is obviously something that is even more of a of a new term. Where does the the theoretical idea come from?
0: Yeah, so the word queer begins to be reclaimed by uh, activists and, and artists and just you know people um, in the late eighties in, in Britain and America. So, you know, they're as early as as early as the 19th century, you have queer as a sort of derogatory word um, for people who step outside traditional gender norms. So, you know, effeminate men, masculine women. And when the sort of earliest gay and lesbian liberation movements begin to kick off in the 60s and 70s, the term that they reclaim is gay and lesbian and in terms of gender also being trans. But I think by the 80s, many activists began to see that, you know, solidifying identity into a whole set of new categories, gay and lesbian, kind of fixes down something that you might want to keep changing. You know, you don't sort of want to stabilize a world where you can be, everyone can be neatly divided into straight, gay, lesbian, cis, trans, you know, to have those things fixed. I think there maybe was a sense which I would share that, Gay or lesbian became slightly depoliticized identities uh, in the 80s. So queer then begins to be reclaimed by activists as a much more all encompassing term for anyone who who is rebelling against kind of norms of gender and sexuality and also kind of a much more inherently political one. And, you know, a really good example of this in in Britain is someone I I write about, Derek Jarman, who, who I adore. And, you know, in the 80s was the first uh, mainstream public figure in Britain to say that they were living with HIV. And in, in his diaries, which are some of my favorite books, you know, he, he writes about, you know, I don't I don't I don't care about being gay. Queer is what I am. And, and that is and that is what I want to be understood as. So that's kind of where the term kind of yeah, picks up its current meaning from that moment in the late 80s and 90s onwards.
1: We're going to come back to to Jarman a bit later on. But the reason I started off with all this theoretical stuff is because I I wanted to get, first of all, into into the essay in the book called uh, The Queer Uses of Art, where you you posit the idea of whether a, a queer museum could exist. And this raises that question that I just sort of hinted at, that there's a sort of weird dichotomy for queer people in that there has always been queer people throughout history but it's only relatively recently that they have had a way to describe themselves in the world, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, I think maybe how I would phrase it would be, there have always been people who are what we today call queer, uh, but queer has only recently become the collective term for that. And I would maybe also think a little bit about queer ultimately comes from a sort of, you know, English-speaking world way of thinking about things. Um, And there's also so many other ways to, you know, think about gender and sexuality as well. One of the, you know, uh, I guess some examples I point out in the essay. um, Oh, I think it is the queer uses of art, actually, too, about, you know, uh, indigenous communities in America, for example, have whole other ways of conceptualizing it that that have always existed. And now we just relate them to queer also. So I would kind of maybe think about, yeah, historically, as well as across across geography and culture. And yeah, and there there is an interesting interesting paradox that, you know, what I think for me and and I think many of the queer artists and writers that I admire, you know, queerness is a way to always be sort of rebelling and inventing and, and rethinking your sexual desire and your pleasure. And there's a joy in it being undefined and open to change. But you know, as soon as you begin to pin it down too much, that capacity to change might might shift. So it's a paradox, but it's one I quite enjoy. It's, it's you know, you, it's. I guess you got to lean into these contradictions and then write from them and see what comes out of it.
1: There's obviously exhibitions of outwardly queer artists and have been, you know, for, for years now. But what you're talking about here about the concept of a, of a queer museum is different. So what do you mean by it?
0: So I guess the the thing that I'm trying to think about in that essay, which is kind of responding to, God... Where did I write it? Like 2017, 18, 19 of, yeah, the first, the first very sort of self-conscious campaigns to set up a queer museum, which we now have in London, the museum, the exhibition showing like the history of queer art, I guess what they're trying to do in those museums, yeah, is to sort of provide ultimately a kind of fixed heritage and a fixed history uh, for people today who identify with the term queer. And that's obviously amazing. You know, I didn't grow up with that. And um, it, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to have. But then the question becomes, you know, does that just make queer another kind of, I guess, identity category? Like what it means to be Irish. You know, I'm also Irish and you have the, an Irish National Museum. And sometimes I think that while it's the memory And the remembering that there have always been people doing what we call queer is really important. We always should keep open the ability to redefine what it what it means to be queer and, you know, maybe in a totally utopian way, abolish the, you know, kind of patriarchy that ultimately has to make us divide up sexuality into gender and queer, normal and abnormal.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The title essay then, Whatever Happened to Queer Happiness? So how do you define happiness in this context?
0: Well, uh, it took me all the whole book to uh, figure it out. I think the short and simple answer is, for me, queer happiness is the kind of relationships and communal lives you can build with other people. And again, that's not meant to be a particularly theoretical or generalizable or abstract claim it is I guess just a reflection on, yeah, what aspects of my queer life have made me the happiest. And also without being without making that too, you know, autobiographical and and introverted, when I look at queer figures from the past and the present, you know, what is it about them that inspires me to also be happy? And I think it is that sense of, of, yeah, queerness as plugging you into a particular kind of collective life. And also a sort of collective life where it's, it's like an, an identity that embraces all kinds of differences. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you've got um, gay, lesbian, cis, trans, straight, and everything in between, you know? Queerness is kind of this amazing umbrella where people who have very different experiences of, of gender and, and desire can kind of come together for a common cause. So, yeah, that that is what queer happiness has come to mean for me. And I think that's the thing I wanted to reflect on, you know, to think of queerness less as a sort of individual identity to to kind of look at stories that are less about an an individual, but a kind of, you know, collective and shared experience. So, yeah, that is that is what queer happiness means to me. And that's why friendship is so important, actually. Friendship is so, you know, I guess when we think when we're talking about sexuality and desire, that it's always about romance and sex and. That is, of course, important. But, you know, queer friendships I seem to be so different to me than heterosexual friendships. I don't want to generalize broadly like that. But friendships are something that I think are slightly neglected in in literature. You know, we think great novels can can be sort of love plots whatever. But I mean, re- I'm really interested in I was really interested in this book and reflecting and writing about and manifesting how important queer friendships are as well. So that is how I would define happiness I think.
1: Yeah I'm sort of taken by that the idea of a collective happiness in that in this chapter as well you talk about activists who are fighting against how you describe it the gentrification of queer life and you know one can also imagine a a way to a way to get happiness which would be you know to get a good job and meet a nice man and settle down into a um a monogamous civil partnership and maybe get a couple of dogs and adopt a couple of kids. And, you know, maybe you might, I don't know, you might, you might want to go to pride, but it's probably not appropriate for the kids these days. And, you know, you might get a direct debit for like the LGB Alliance or something, you know, that sort of life.
0: Um, Yes. If that is what makes you happy, then by all means go for it. But, you know, that is the kind of life that is enabled and supported by so many kind of social mechanisms everything from tax breaks to social norms to what we see on the on the TV legally right you know there's people who enter civil partnership get legal protection but people who don't uh, don't and all of that is kind of so everyday that we almost don't notice it and yeah it's not about competition if if you want to like you know live with your partner and have your dogs wonderful but you know it would be so amazing to have a society where we like enable actively and positively all kinds of different ways of relationships and all kinds of different life journeys you know what I mean I think I was yeah there's a there's a phrase in the last essay you know life isn't just about eventually growing up settling down and staying in and it would be and you know people have always lived that life that's the thing that's kind of what you're saying you know there have always been people who have lived what we call queer lives it's just they've been forgotten or their stories haven't been preserved. So, yeah. And, and you know, to, th- to think about happiness not in this competitive way, you know, sometimes that can be a bit, a bit limiting that you're thinking about a different way of life is necessarily attacking a, someone else's way of life. That, that's not what it's about. Yeah. More. That's, that's a really nice way of, of thinking about queer desire and, and queer happiness. More, more, more.
1: Selling a little? You're to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kevin Brazil, and we're talking about his new book, Whatever Happened to Queer Happiness? And Kevin, in this title essay as well, you also look at um, a number of queer writers, a number of people who coincidentally have been on this show, like Andrea Lawler, Garth Greenwell, um, Hanya Yanagihara, and, and how writing about queer lives is so often full of suffering and shame and again how this seems to be the opposite of the the pursuit of happiness
0: yeah I think it's you know that essay kind of came out of I guess just a response to a particular moment and you know so I read a lot of book reviews and do a lot of art reviews so I'm always looking around for, for what's coming up and there just there seem to be I guess said so that was published what 2020 so yeah just in the years running up to that there were so many Novels, many and many of which I love. I mean, I love Garth Greenwell, you know. And what they did all seem to have in common, though, was just over and over and over queerness associated with, yeah, suffering and trauma and loss, and often in these very individualized ways. So I think one of the things that one of the journeys that essay took me on initially was like, gosh, you know, queerness stories about queer happiness are out there. There's, you know, always been writers writing amazing, radical celebrations of of queer joy. But they were not the ones seemingly getting elevated by more mainstream um, publishing outlets. And I wanted to think about why that was. And in a way, the journey that essay took me on and thinking about it was that it's ultimately less about suffering and then about individuality. And there's something about often novels exploring individual suffering center on the experience of an individual person. And they take on a sort of autobiographical form. So in a way, that's kind of what, interested me most that why maybe not so much why are stories of queer life always about suffering or trauma, because I mean they are and it would be silly and, and and almost, you know, not very kind to dismiss all of that. But why so are so many, not why, but why can it sometimes feel we're in a moment where queerness is only expressed in autobiographical form, you know, memoirs, auto fiction and so on, when so much of queer life has been a collective endeavor, you know? Which then raises an interesting paradox for writing because, you know, I mean, while there can be collectively written books, it is often you have to, I think, invent different forms of writing to write about collective experience. And so that is kind of kind of what the opening essay begins reflecting on. And then by the last essay, kind of, you know, writing about clubbing and dance music, which has been for me maybe where so much of my queer culture has been accessed, doing it through the format of a, of a DJ set, which is inherently a, a collective way of doing music right pulling together different different artists musical artists yeah it's at the end of the collection that I try to find that form for writing about collective queerness as opposed to always the individual autobiographical approach
1: as an example of a um of a life seemingly well lived within within the bounds maybe of his time you talk about Um, A man called Samuel Stewart, who I'd I'd not come across before, who who did indeed live an amazing life. Tell us a bit more about who he was.
0: Yeah. So, God, he was an incredible person. So, yeah, Samuel Stewart was a American uh, man, a white uh, cisgender man who was born in the 20s um, and, you know, grew up in, I guess, the Midwest and then moved to Chicago and ultimately then on to San Francisco in the 60s and, and 70s. And it's only because of the work... I mean, he published so many things throughout his life onto different, different pseudonyms and different kind of nom de plumes. So he wrote pornography, kind of satirical essays. Um, and it's only because of the amazing work of Justin Spring, who wrote a 2010 biography called Secret Historian, The Life and Time of Samuel Stewart, And then in 2018, which was kind of the prompt for me writing this uh, this essay, uh, Jeremy Mulderig published um, his Uncomplete Autobiography. So when when Stewart died, among his files, he had a a sort of a manuscript called The Lost Autobiography of Samuel Stewart, And in it, he, he ultimately reflects on, you know, the impossibility of writing his autobiography. He kind of talks about, I've lived so many different lives. So many different people have been formative to my life, that the idea that you know, I have one story just doesn't make sense. And so he didn't, he didn't finish that autobiography. And I thought that was a really fascinating way into to thinking about someone's life. And among the many different lives he led, you know, he was a English professor. He was a tattoo artist. He was friends with Gertrude Stein. He met Thomas Mann. He met uh, Bosie, you know, the infamous Bosie from Oscar Wilde. Uh, so he just seems to pull, you know, pull together this in, the entirety of, of queer cultural life in the 20th century and yeah in in that incomplete autobiography you know he just reflects on actually his you know while he had difficulties and he was an alcoholic and you know often felt incredibly lonely you know at a, it, at a time this was maybe pre you know pre stonewall and in the 40s 50s and 60s he was able to live the most pleasurable and fulfilling sexual and social queer life you know and it kind of goes against so much of our well not our but so many existing narratives you know that everyone before gay liberation in the 70s and 80s was living these closeted unhappy lonely lives and you know queer people couldn't connect and be with each other and they certainly couldn't have amazing sex um and that's that's just not true you know and none of it is to say uh he didn't you know experience awful discrimination and 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 didn't have his life stunted in in many ways but i think I think, yeah, pushing against the idea that queer people from the past were always desperately lonely and miserable is what I wanted that essay to do and, and why I was drawn to him as a figure.
1: I was struck by there's a, a quote in one of the essays from Jean Genet, who who believed that the um the homosexual was a person that didn't want the world to continue, which is incredibly bleak. And and I raised that as a way to get you to talk about the um Tell us about the planet Splendora.
0: <laughs> um, I think I actually don't see the Jeanne the quote as actually particularly bleak, uh, you know, because the homosexual doesn't want the world as it is to continue, you know, and implied in that is um, actually a kind of joyful kind of destruction, right? You know, I mean, I don't think anyone would want the world as we have currently set it up to continue because it's going to destroy the world, just in the ecological sense. So I, I do think there's actually something kind of joyful in that. Um, but Planet Spendora is, is, is a world that's maybe the opposite of Janae's statement, where the homosexual, the gay cis homosexual, has become the only thing that exists. Um, so Splendora is a planet in a sci-fi novel called Ethan and Athos, and it is a planet which is only populated by uh, cis gay men who have fled there and set up that planet to escape persecution in the rest of the universe. You can see maybe what the metaphor is doing. And they have invented a way to have children, growing them in artificial wombs. And so not only is it a planet that doesn't have any women on it, it's a planet where women are necessary. And so the gay men, they have uh, children in these artificial wombs. The wombs ensure that only other that uh, the only type of, of children who are born are also men and that these men are also gay. And that, while maybe there have been times in my life where that would have seemed like a paradise, the novel is an amazing way to explore how actually that is kind of, you know, uh, not the utopia it might seem, because, you know, it ultimately r- relies upon the exploitation of women. So as the kind of novel unfolds, it turns out that you, they have to go and steal eggs from women across the universe, like every couple hundred of years, and it raises all the kind of, ambiguities of do you really want a world where only people like you exist you know and I think yeah kind of going back to what I said before what I love about queerness as a term of identification is that all kinds of differences can come together under the same identity so the idea of a planet with only other cis gay men is a nightmare and that is that is what that novel shows
1: to finish it off though, let's talk about another weird kind of paradise. There's a, a really beautiful personal essay, as you mentioned at the beginning, about Derek Jarman, about Dungeness, the place that he um, ended up living out his life. Um, so tell us something about what, let's finish off talking about what Jarman meant to you then, personally.
0: Gosh, uh, so I moved, what, when did I move to Britain? I moved to Britain in 2010, so from Ireland, and I moved to London in 2016. and I had always sort of known Derek Jarman from growing up, from seeing his films on like Channel 4. You know, there used to be a time when Channel 4 would show all these amazing avant garde films at like, you know, midnight or something. And I would see things like The Last of England or Sebastian. I was like, oh my God, what is this, you know? Um, and so when I moved down to London, I would go a couple of times a year out to Dungeness, take the train, cycle all the way there. And just reading his diaries over the years and seeing all his films, I just, it weirdly was as much about finding a kind of queer artist figure who I admired, even though there were some, you know, the, the limitations, but also weirdly a kind of Englishness in which I felt at home, you know, uh, an Englishness that's all about being weird and unconventional. And that is, you know, a sort of funny thing to feel as an Irish person. And it was certainly a funny thing to think of, of, of a, as, a, as a non-British person in the years around Brexit. So, yeah, that is what Jarman meant to me. And, you know, just the kind of, yeah, the, the, the bravery of his life, you know, the first, I think, British public person to announce they were living with HIV and his determination to, you know, not just live with that, but to flourish and, and still enjoy a, a full sexual life and a full social life with that, even though, you know, he ultimately died of AIDS-related illnesses in the, in the early 90s. So another thing he kind of meant to me as well is a sort of reflection on so many gay male artists who died. You know, there is that kind of there's that sort of irrevocable break in the early 90s between one generation of gay men and the next. And that's another thing of what he means to me, that, that sort of loss and that break and, and remembering across that break, too.
1: So I've been talking to Kevin Brazil. We've been talking about his collection of essays, Whatever Happened to Queer Happiness, which is out now from Influx Press. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you for having me on the podcast. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89UP. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.